Where we are in Luke is that Jesus is, um, uh, he, him and the Pharisees are going head to head. And they've been fighting for a few weeks and it's going to keep going for a few weeks. And so you can imagine that if you're one of Jesus's followers, you're one of the 12 disciples or one of the wider group of 70 disciples or 72 disciples, um, you're probably watching this happen and you're thinking, Jesus, whoa, slow down. Like, you're shocked by what Jesus is doing. These were the powerful religious leaders. These were the guys who were in charge of stuff. And um, these were like the holy folks that, oh wait, did we start the recording by the way? Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Uh, the holy folks, because I didn't do it, uh, that everybody looked up to their whole lives, right? They grew up thinking in, like this. Those are like the really super religious people that we should all try to be like. And then Jesus shows up and he starts yelling at these guys. But here's the thing, too. These guys weren't just the religious guys. They were also very powerful. Um, not just with religion, but with the civil authorities, right? They could have people executed. That, I mean, these were like powerful dudes. And Jesus is going pretty hard against these guys. And the disciples are probably watching this happen. And they're thinking, Jesus, don't poke the bear, right? These guys can get you. And if you know the story, what happens? These guys get them, right? So if they had this fear, which it doesn't specifically say they had, but I'm guessing they did, it would have been justified. Um, nowhere in the Gospels or in the Bible does it promise the people of God that being a part of the kingdom of God is going to be easy and free from persecution. It doesn't. Uh, actually, it kind of says the opposite. Um, it says, I'll read you these two verses. In uh, John 15, Remember the word I said to you, that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. So Jesus is saying, they're going to persecute me, and you guys aren't better than me. And so you can expect this as well. Or um, my favorite verse that nobody ever cross-stitches and puts in their hallway of their home, right? It's always... As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. Or one of the Proverbs promises or something. Nobody cross-stitches or gets this verse tattooed. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? That's pretty cut and dry. It doesn't say sometimes if you decide to follow Jesus, it's going to be hard. He says basically for every single person who ever decides to do this and decides to follow Jesus and be part of the kingdom of God, some sort of persecution will come. So the promise is not you'll be safe. The promise is they're going to come after you. But why? Well, because the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Babylon, they don't play well together, right? They don't go together. They're like orange juice and toothpaste, right? You guys ever do that? Right? That's gross. <laughs> you know, I made that joke once in a church of like 300 people and everybody looked at me with blank stares and I said, you guys have never done this? The entire crowd had no idea. Anyway. Uh, the, um, the kingdom of God always rubs Babylon the wrong way, gets under Babylon's skin. And, um, it's, and this is part of the reason why. Uh, have you ever been really mad at somebody and you wanted them to engage? Like in your sinful heart, you were mad at somebody and you wanted them to engage in anger back with you so you guys could get into it and they were just really nice? <laughs> and you know how the... Oh, just fight with me, man, you know? Like, that's kind of how the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Babylon works. As we love, they do things that are not great, right? And that's the world system. And we just continue to love and serve and do kingdom of God things. And it rubs people the wrong way. And so 
when that happens, Babylon pushes back. And that's what persecution is. Babylon pushing back. So what's the good news then? Well, that's what we're going to see today. So verse uh, 1 of, oops, sorry. Verse 1 of chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to the disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So thousands of people, in Greek, it's like that word myriad, have you ever seen that in other translations? Myriads and myriad, it just means like, it doesn't actually mean thousands like the number, it just means like a ton of people. And so the translators were like, I bet it was thousands. So we'll put thousands in there. It makes sense, right? Probably wasn't millions of people. <laughs> Probably wasn't 100 people. So it's a good translation, right? So a lot, a ton of people are coming. Now, remember the last verses, though, of, um, of chapter 11, how chapter 11 ends this way. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. So the end of the, the uh, end of the, oh no, it's not there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the end of the, um, the last chapter is the Pharisees trying to squash the work of Jesus, right? They're trying to stop it. The very next verse, and by the way, thousands of people were showing up. So al already these Pharisees are probably upset because what they're trying to do to stop Jesus is absolutely not working. In fact, it's probably having the opposite effect, right? It's like when you tell a kid, don't touch the wet paint, right? It's always the first thing a kid's going to do with a little finger, right? This is a whole crowd. The Pharisees are like, hey, this guy's bad. And everybody in the crowd goes, oh, like they all show up, thousands of people. And so it says here that Jesus says to his disciples, um, Melissa and I are watching a TV show you may have heard of. It's called Downtown Abbey. Just kidding. Downtown Abbey. Um, you know, about the British servants and all this stuff uh, in the early 20th century. Right, that feels. <laughs> I saw somebody the other day was like in the late 20th century, and I was triggered. That made me feel really old. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so it's like the British, the the upper class, and their servants, right? And it tells the story of both those groups of people in the same house. Um, and in the show, there's times when the the rich, uh, noble people are all talking to each other, and a servant is standing right there listening, and they're almost saying something they want the servant to hear. Right? Can you believe these servants? They're so ungrateful, blah, blah, blah. And they pretend like the person's not even there. And then they go back and tell everybody, oh, Lord Grantham said, blah, blah, blah. You know, That's what Jesus is doing here. It says, he spoke to his disciples. But the, in the same verse, it says, but thousands of people were standing right there. So what Jesus is doing here was a very common sort of teaching technique back in the day. He would speak to some people while at the same time, he was speaking to everybody. Okay, And what he says is, beware of the least... Uh, sorry, the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees. Um, so apparently, I googled this because I don't know what was going on here. This may come as a surprise, but I've never made bread. <laughs> right? Heaven, what does dad cook? See? <laughs> yeah, see, I cook McDonald's. Anyway, so it's, you know, the stuff that throwing the bread in, it makes it rise. Now, anybody here made bread before? Okay, how much... Yeast, do you put in a loaf of bread? Right? Just a little bit, apparently, is what the internet told me this week. And it makes the whole, it, you know, it affects the whole bunch of bread, right? The whole loaf of bread. Now, in the, the scriptures, Jesus is picking up a theme from the Old Testament. He didn't make this up. He's picking this up from the Old Testament, where uh, yeast and leaven are a picture of sin. And uh, there's a whole thing with the Jewish festivals, why they have the bread, the unleavened bread, right? There's a bread with no yeast in it. It's the... 
it represents like sinlessness. Anyway, it's a long story, but Jesus is saying, beware of the, basically the sin of the Pharisees. And the idea is that just a little bit of the sin, he'll say in other parts, can spoil a lot of stuff, right? It really spreads around. It doesn't take a lot of this to do it. And so in this case, he's specifically railing on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes. And if you remember from last week, some of the stuff that they did, right? Like you guys tithe your, your herbs, right? And remember the, the ridiculous image that is to pour out a thing of herbs from the grocery store. Nine for me, one for Jesus. Nine for me, one, you know what I mean? Like to go through that meticulous thing because it looks hard while at the same time they're completely ignoring the justice of God right the big things that you're supposed to do taking care of widows and orphans and poor folks and leaving the edge of your fields you know all the stuff that the old testament said about justice these guys were completely ignoring it but they were tithing their herbs and so Jesus is railing on their hypocrisy um, and you guys know the word hypocrite you guys know what that means it's the the Greek word that they used for actors right Kayla loves actors right the this is Kayla, right up Kayla's alley. Um, they would act with a mask on, you know? And that's the word hypocrite. And Jesus is the one who used it to describe the Pharisees. You guys are like actors. You're just pretending. That's what he's really saying. Um, <clears throat> all right, so keep going. Um, verse two. Nothing is covered up that will be revealed, uh, that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Okay, so this is one of those verses that, again, as you read this, you have to read it in context. You have to understand what it is that Jesus is saying and what it is that he's not saying. And this is very important. So for the people of Jesus, right, for the followers of Jesus, the kingdom of God people, we don't have to worry about someday standing before the judgment throne with everybody in human history standing behind us while God reads off a list of everything ever that we've done wrong. Right? People kind of have that image in their mind. Oh, something that I did wrong in the dark or when nobody was watching. Someday this is going to be brought to light and everybody's going to know what I did and I'm going to be embarrassed and God's going to read this list of sins. That's not what this is about. Um, Romans 8.1 says this. There is, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? That's important. So your sins have already been handled at the cross. And so for you, you're not going to face the consequences of those sins. You're not going to face, not the consequences on earthly consequences, the eternal judgment kind of consequences for those sins. And then he says this, uh, Isaiah says this, uh, God in Isaiah says this, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. So this is sort of prophetic language. It's God knows everything. and We're going to get into this in a minute. Uh, he knows all. It's not that he doesn't remember your sins. It's that he chooses not to remember your sins and bring them up again. You know what I mean? Like, have you ever had somebody actually do that? Where you did something wrong and you guys talked about it and the person said to you, all right, we're done. I'm not going to bring this up again. And then they never did. Versus sometimes you have somebody who says that and then brings it up constantly. Oh, you know, well, remember that time? And I thought you said you weren't going to bring this up anymore, right? Well, God's like the good one, right? He's the one who actually never brings this stuff up again. So for those of us who have put faith in Jesus, our sins were handled at the cross. This, what Jesus is talking about here in Luke is specifically about Babylon, um, about the, in this verse here, it's about these Pharisees and the, these hypocrites, right? These scribes and Pharisees. And here's the thing, sin loves to hide in the dark. Hypocrites love the dark, they love deception. Once their schemes go public, the jig is up. And so 
This is how Babylon operates. A lot of what happens in Babylon is in the dark. Again, think about it, right? The Pharisees are scheming in the dark to get Jesus. They're not scheming in public. When do they arrest Jesus? In the middle of the night when nobody's watching because they know. Um, but also, the truth is, sometimes Babylon also loves to do these things that should be in the dark in the light. Um, think about the earliest Christians facing lions and stuff while thousands of people cheered. That was a very public thing. Nero, Nero um, persecuted believers by uh, saying, oh, you guys claim to be the light of the world, right? Uh, so I'll light you on fire and I'll use you like a lamp in my gardens. And people burn to death, right? Well, that in front of everybody, right? So sometimes when Jesus says, when we talk about sin loves the dark, I think it, what it could also mean is not just that it loves to do things that nobody can see, but it loves to do things that everybody can see, but not face the consequences of it, right? In the dark, as in like, it doesn't, there's no, this isn't going to be brought to the light of justice, right? It's in the dark in that sense. The fear for the people of God then is that Babylon is going to win, that they're going to get the best of God's people in human history. Um, last month, I don't know if you guys like uh, read the news a lot, like world news, not, um, you know, like U.S. news, but um, in Germany, uh, they arrested a Nazi secretary from a concentration camp. She's 96 years old, and she's going to go on trial for war crimes, and for her death, I guess, I, don't, I didn't read, I, I read a little bit, but there wasn't a ton of information, but it looks like what she did was keep the ledgers and kind of really help organize the murder of a ton of people. And so if she did that, I mean, I don't know the whole story, and she's got to go on trial and everything, but if she did that, um, yeah, she's complicit in the deaths of literally thousands and thousands of Jewish folks and other, you know, religious people, um, persecute, persecuted religious people and uh, people with disabilities, all sorts of like terrible stuff that happened in these concentration camps. Now, there may be one of her victims still alive from one of those concentration camps that was watching this on the news and saw her arrest. And they thought to themselves, finally, right, justice has come. It's a little late, but justice has come. That's Jesus's point. That day is coming for everybody in Babylon. Even if it looks like Babylon got away with it until they're 96 years old, the day is coming when God is going to drop the hammer and sin is going to be punished. And what happened in the dark will be brought to light, the light of God's justice. And so for God's people, then for us, for the kingdom of God, this is incredibly freeing. And let me explain why. When Babylon gets you, it's not your job to get them back, right? You don't have to. Romans, you know this verse from Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For as it is written, he quotes the Old Testament, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So vengeance, justice, all this stuff, like this vengeance against Babylon, belongs to the Lord. That's not our job. And because we know that God will deal with it, we don't have to. And that's such an amazing feeling. Because in this life, Right? What did 2 Timothy say? If you're trying to live a godly life, Babylon's going to come after you. Babylon is going to get you. So, we, But when that happens, we don't have to let it bother us because it's going to be handled by somebody else. You, you know that feeling? Um, John's a manager, right? You have a bunch of people work for you. Isn't it the best feeling in the world to say to somebody, hey, do this thing, and then you don't, like, you know they're super competent and you don't have to worry about it now. And you don't go to sleep worrying about it because you know somebody who's really great at this is going to do it, and I know it's going to be great. 
that's such a great feeling versus doing the same thing with somebody you know is going to mess it up and, and then you're sitting around worrying about it. With the justice of God, we don't have to worry about if God's going to do his job. He's going to do his job. And so that is so freeing for the people of God. We don't have to be people of vengeance. We don't have to be people who get Babylon back. We just, we work through and we love while this is happening. Now, it's not to say this is easy. I don't want to just, sometimes preachers do that, right? We just present these ideas like life isn't real. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like things aren't hard. Um, <clears throat> and that this is hard to trust God to, to handle these sort of situations. Um, one of my favorite books is The Hiding Place. Have you guys read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom? Yeah, this book is unbelievable. I've read it, I don't know, probably 10 times in my life. Um, uh, I can't wait to die so I can meet her. You know what I mean? <laughs> I want to take Corey Ten Boom and her sister out for coffee when we get to heaven. She seems like such an amazing godly woman. Um, and her, actually, and the whole book that she wrote about all of her suffering in a concentration camp and all this stuff was actually about what an amazing woman her sister was, <laughs> right? So she went through all of this and then wrote a book about how great her sister who died in the camps was. Anyway, so this is the end of The Hiding Place, so I'm going to spoil it for you. Corey Ten Boom, spoilers, this book came out 50 years ago or something. Um, <laughs> Corey Ten Boom, uh, she, Corey, she lived through the concentration camps and um, wrote the book, obviously, and her sister did not. And so the end of the book, she's going around talking in churches about love and, all, and her experience in the concentration camps. And so there's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I'm, I don't have it on the slides. I'm just going to read this to you. Um, this is literally how the book ends. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him there, <clears throat> that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing uh, center at Ravensbrück, which was one of the concentration camps she was at. He was, our first, he was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy, I think that's his sister. <coughs> Sorry, Betsy, I think is his sister. I haven't read this in a while. Um, her pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Frau Lyon. German, what does that mean? Sister or something? Friend? Anyway, Fraulein. He said, to think that, as you have said, he has washed all of my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in uh, Blomendal, the need, which I think was, I could be wrong, but she kind of built a house for survivors of the Holocaust, I think. And stuff. Anyway, um, about the need to forgive, I kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry and vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man, and I was going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed in a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm, all the way through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. 
That is a gut-wrenching passage at the end of this book when she meets one of the actual people from the concentration camp who was horrible to her and how, she, how this love boils up within her. Um, when she met him, she was in a spot where one of two things was going to happen to this SS guard who had done these war crimes and these atrocities. Either he was going to face the wrath of God Almighty and he was going to answer for what he had done to Corey Ten Boom and the others, or Jesus was going to face that wrath in his place. Either way, she was free to love him, right? Because it's not, vengeance is not Corey Ten Boom's, right? It's, it's the Lord's. Vengeance is not our, that's not our job. Our job is to try to, as hard as it is, to live like Corey Ten Boom, right? I love that, that book. If you have not read this book, she's such a great uh, woman. All right, let's keep going. Um, verse, uh, where are we? Verse four. He says, I tell you, my friends, so Jesus is continuing. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And then after, after that, they have nothing more that they can do. So he tells them, look, don't be afraid of Babylon. Have you ever thought about this? Why, if you were a billionaire, wouldn't you just park wherever you wanted? You know, I saw a tech guy um, back in the day. So there's a website back in the day, uh, dig.com. Do you guys know the story of dig anyway? And then uh, he tried to sell it for a ton of money and then his board shot him down and then the website basically disappeared and he didn't make any money off of it. But anyway, while he was still worth hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever, the founder of dig, I saw him in an interview talk about living in San Francisco. And he said, look, I park wherever I want and I just get tickets. And sometimes my car gets towed and then I just send an intern to go get it and bring it back because this is how much money I make per minute, right? And figuring out parking is more expensive than my time, right? He's a billionaire. He's not afraid of meter maids, right? This guy is, you know, like, I don't know, somebody who's super rich is not afraid of meter maids. But you know who those guys are afraid of, right? Is Well, hey, wait, before I get into that, um, the idea is in the grand scheme of things, a billionaire getting fined a parking ticket is like, imagine if every time you got a parking ticket, it was three cents, right? It, okay, the perspective of how much money you actually have versus losing three cents is, ah, uh, who cares, <laughs> right? If I drop three cents on the floor with my slip disc, I'll be honest, I'm not picking it up, <laughs> right? Three cents is not that much money. That's what Jesus is saying. In the grand scheme of things, right, the, the persecution that's happening to you all these guys can really do to you is find you three cents in the, in the perspective of eternity. So who is it that these guys do fear? Who is a billionaire really afraid of? Is what? The SEC, <laughs> right? Or somebody like that who can come in and tear your business up and, you know, in a lot of cases, they'll send you to jail for the, the things you've done wrong, right? Like, um, <clears throat> I don't know, a bunch of these guys have gone to jail for stuff, right? Or, well, maybe not enough, but uh, <laughs> the, the, theoretically, the idea is these guys are afraid of the SEC. And that's Jesus's point in this next verse, right? Is don't be afraid of the meter maids, be afraid of the SEC. He says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Okay, so before we get into this, I want to give you a book recommendation. I do that a lot. I know uh, you guys don't read all these books, but here's one that you should read maybe someday. <clears throat> Especially because this is going to come up in a conversation as you're talking to people about your faith. You guys really believe in hell and judgment and this sort of stuff. Francis Chan um, wrote a book called Erasing Hell. And it was a response to a book by this pastor in the Midwest, wrote a book called Love Wins. 
And in his book, his name's Rob Bell. In Rob Bell's Love Wins book, the basic idea is that a loving God would never send people to hell, and so everybody goes to heaven. He's a universalist. And so Chan wrote a book that, um, actually, I, I, I don't know him real well, but I sort of know Francis Chan. And I asked him once, like, about his books. And he said, this is the book that was the hardest to write, but the one he's the most glad that he wrote. It was because, because of this issue. So go check out that book. I'll talk about it a little here. Now, let's get into this. Jesus says, don't fear the meter maids. Don't fear these guys who can only hurt your body. Fear the one who, can, who has the authority to cast you into hell. Um, the Greek word for hell is the word Gehenna. And you may have heard this before. Um, it was a valley outside of Jerusalem. Now, I'm guessing if you've been around church for any sort of period of time, you may have heard this illustration that what Gehenna was, was it was a garbage dump. Has anybody heard this? Yeah, in sermons and whatnot? Okay, so Gehenna was a garbage dump where there was this like fire that burned. And Jesus used that image of a garbage dump to sort of describe hell. Anyway, and a lot of people will use that to kind of lower, lessen the, the seriousness of the idea of hell. The problem with that is, and Chan really rips this apart in a long exegetical section of this book in chapter two. Um, the problem with that is, um, the first person that ever mentioned anything about that wasn't until 1200 AD. So anything that's the first time, the other one that's like this is, if you, have you heard the sermon of, um, you know, it's harder to get into heaven, like uh, for a rich guy to get into heaven than the camel through the eye of the needle. And you've heard like there was a gate and the camels would have to, that whole thing is completely made up to about the same time as this, right? That's not true. Because the whole point of that passage is it's impossible to get into heaven for anybody, right? And it, because he even says, but all things are possible with God. So anyway, like these historical things we got to be sure about. This is one of them. The garbage dump idea is not true. So what does Jesus mean? What was Gehenna? I'm going to read to you the section from Chan's book. So uh, it's also called the, the Hinnom Valley. So what was it about this valley that forged the word Gehenna into an image of a fiery judgment? In the Old Testament, the Hinnom Valley was the place where the Israelites in, engaged in idolatrous worship of the Canaanite gods Molech and Baal or Baal. It was here, in fact, that they sacrificed their children to these gods, making them pass through the fire. Those are some gut-wrenching passages. Um, when Jeremiah began to preach, the Hinnom Valley started to take on a metaphorical reference for the place that the, where the bodies of the wicked would be cast. Behold, the days are coming uh, when it will be no more called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. That's from Jeremiah. Uh, Jews living between the Testaments, they picked up on this metaphor and they ran with it. So the word Gehenna that was widely used by Jews during the time of Jesus to refer to this fiery place of judgment for the wicked um, at, the, uh, at the end times as we have seen. Um, wait, is that the end of it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. So basically, back in the day, there was this god Molech. This is brutal. Um, I hope somebody's not listening. And um, there was this god, Molech, and they had this big statue of Molech. And uh, he had a big, wide-open mouth and two arms that would stick out like this. And he was made out of, I forget what it was, some metal. And uh, they would build a fire inside the statue, and it would get crazy hot. And they would take, they would play drums really loud so you couldn't hear the screaming. And they would take their kids, and they would put them on the arms and roll them in. And this was a common, so next time somebody gets upset about God judging the Canaanites, this is what was going on, right? This is why God sent the people of Israel through, and I've done whole sermons about that. But then what happened was the Israelites picked up this crap, 
And they started doing it themselves. And the place where they were doing this was the Valley of Gehenna, right? This Hinnom Valley, uh, this spot. And so this word got start, started being used um, to describe, like, this is what you guys have done to people. This is what God's going to do to you. That was the idea. So it was this image of judgment, right? What you've done is going to happen to you. You're going to get your just desserts. And so, like, the idea of hell, I'm kind of in the, it's probably not literal fire camp of theologians, but with an image, you never use an image to describe something less. You always use an image to describe something more. So for Jesus to say that the judgment of God where people are gonna face their eternal destiny and the eternal wrath of God is like being burned alive in the arms of Molech means whatever it actually is is worse than that, not, not less. So in our culture, the tendency is to try to soften the words of God on the idea of hell and on the idea of judgment. It's so repugnant to modern ears to even talk about hell, right? And so like even outside the church, inside the church, guys like Rob Bell in his book, churches are abandoning what Christians have believed about hell and judgment since the very beginning of our faith, right? This, this whole idea of, oh, well, <clears throat> God wouldn't judge people like this, is, it's a very new idea. Right, you're not going to find this anywhere in church history. But the question isn't, what does our culture say? What does my gut feeling tell me as I've been raised in my culture? Our question has to be, what is the biblical perspective? And the biblical perspective on hell and judgment as you read through the Bible is pretty clear. Every sin is against a perfectly holy God. It's like, um, <clears throat> I always say, I explain it like this. If you punched me, I'd be angry. I probably wouldn't even call the police right? Depending on the circumstances. I'd just be upset with you. Okay, if you punched Joe Biden, you'd be in a lot of trouble, right? Why? Because Joe Biden is significantly more important than me. He's the president of the United States and he holds his office. Now, it's the same crime, isn't it? But the person you've just punched is completely changes, changes the crime. Now, imagine somebody infinite, not the president, but infinitely perfect. Every tiny little sin against that God deserves judgment for all of eternity, more judgment than you could ever absorb. And so every sin then is going to face that wrath. And hell is the place where that wrath is poured out on um, sin, right? All right, so we have, I'm gonna actually skip through these. I put these in here, but my timer's going, see? This, this is going well. Um, I want you to maybe go back. I think we put these in the, um, the thing. Go look at these. This is the EFCA statement of faith on hell, on judgment and all this stuff. And in the middle there, there's a thing where it says, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation, and this is the important part, to conscious, uh, eternal conscious punishment, right? That's important, is that we're not, the Bible doesn't teach, um, and here's the New City Catechism on the same thing. The Bible doesn't teach annihilationism, where you're just gonna disappear, right? It uses words like God will destroy you, but it's like metaphoric, language. It doesn't mean literally you're going to cease to exist. Um, the Bible doesn't teach purgatory, like this in-between space where you can work off some of your sin, right? Either the death of Jesus worked or it didn't, you know what I mean? Like there's no halfway measures. The Bible doesn't teach universalism, where everybody will eventually get to heaven. Um, the Bible teaches that God will justly judge for all of eternity those who rebel against him and rebel against his lordship. And Jesus here in this verse specifically says you should be afraid of that. 
And remember who's the context, though. He's talking to his disciples while thousands of people are listening as he talks about the Pharisees. So I don't think in this instance he's talking specifically to his disciples. You guys need to be afraid of hell. We don't have to be afraid of hell, right? Jesus went through hell for us. We, it's done, right? He's talking to everybody else. He's talking to this crowd. And um, it's really funny how our culture has this sort of plague where um, people just read headlines and pretend like they know what's going on. You know what I mean? Thanks, Facebook, you know, thanks, Zuck. Um, it's, a, it's, it's terrible, right? Um, a lot, there's a lot of people who talk about Jesus like he's some sort of a hippie Buddhist uh, who uh, would never talk about judgment in hell and he just sits around with his friends and they, uh, you know, sing kumbaya and love everybody. And, uh, but I don't understand where that idea comes from, honestly, right? It's, that's just kind of dummies who only think headlines. Who, there's no way to read through the Gospels and get this picture of Jesus because Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in Scripture. Paul hardly ever talks about hell. Right in the, the writings of Paul. Most of the stuff that we talk about when we talk about hell comes from the teachings specifically from Jesus' mouth. And the reason is because he was so loving. He's pleading with people, look guys, I'm dying for you. You need to accept this in faith um, and you'll be saved from this judgment. But again, back to the disciples, Babylon, he says, is going to press on you until that judgment comes. So understanding that judgment comes helps us not take vengeance. Understanding what's happened but again, the temptation in these moments, when you're in the very moment where something bad like this is happening, is to question God. And so Jesus, I think, coming back to now talking to his disciples, he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of far more value than many sparrows. So God, the next thing he says is God has complete knowledge. God knows what's up, right? Um, in these two verses here, First uh, John, uh, it says specifically, he knows everything. Uh, in Job, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit to the Almighty? It's higher than the heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol or deeper than hell or the afterlife. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. That's just an ancient way to say God literally knows literally knows everything. Um, there was a theologian, Arthur Pink, A.W. Pink. He said this, <clears throat> He knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present, the future. He's perfectly acquainted with every detail of the life, a detail in the life of every being in heaven and earth and hell. His knowledge is perfect, right? So God knows everything, but also, not only does he know everything, he's also in control of everything, this is the New City Catechism question uh, uh, the, uh, at the very beginning there. Who is God? Question two. And if you look at the last sentence, nothing happens except through him and by his will. So not only does God know everything, he controls everything. And this is how this plays in. When Babylon presses in, God's people are going to be tempted to believe, A, that God is not paying attention, or that God's not really in control. And Jesus assures his people that neither of those things is true. God is paying attention. He is in control. When Babylon comes to get you, God knows every detail about your situation, and he cares more about you than you could ever imagine. And when Babylon gets you, it's not because he's not in control. It's because he has a wider purpose in letting Babylon get you. And we have to trust that. And so that's what this whole thing about the sparrows is. Um, and so... Um, the, the call on God's people then is during those times to stay faithful and trust him. 
Verse 8, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So Jesus is encouraging his soon-to-be-persecuted people, keep the faith. Don't turn away from me. Um, Now, this whole, like, if you acknowledge me, I'm going to acknowledge you. That sounds really scary, doesn't it? I, talking about coercion specifically. I don't, wanna, I don't think it's wise to push this too far, too far to the extreme. Um, right after this happened, the Romans tortured a lot of Christians. And some of those church folks, while being tortured, caved and denied Christ uh, in, in those moments. And there's a lot of stuff in the early church about how they treated those people when they tried to come back. Right? and how they treated the people who didn't cave and survived. And it, honestly, the history is like not that great. <laughs> you know, Church people were very harsh. Look, in, in a situation like this, I hope that I would stand firm. But if some wicked, sadistic turkey was lopping off fingers one by one with bolt cutters, I don't know how far I would make it, right? Honestly, like, I th- I'd like to think that my faith is stronger than my fear of pain and my wish to get out of pain, but in that situation, who knows what I'll do? I think what Jesus is saying here, this is more of a lifelong idea, right? A wider idea. It's not a one-time sin thing. Because we have examples specifically. Peter is an example. He denied Christ right before the crucifixion. When Jesus like, needed support the most and needed love from his friends the most, he abandoned him. And right after that, we have at the end of John the restoration. Do you love me? Feed my sheep, right? Peter was very quickly restored by the Lord. I think this is more of like a, in your whole lifetime, are you confessing Christ, not a did you stumble once while somebody was lopping off fingers, right? But the call is still, while they're lopping off fingers, don't deny me, right? So we don't want to push this too far and be like, it's, a, it's black and white and you can never come back from this. But the call is still, be faithful. Um, and then he, he starts talking about... Um, I think this helps make sense with what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. In Mark and Matthew, the context of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit makes a lot more sense. Because in, in, the, in, in those two Gospels, um, what happened was, a couple, we read a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember when they said to Jesus, you're casting out demons in the name of Satan, in the name of Beelzebul. Jesus says, you guys are so messed up in the other Gospels. These two parts are right next to each other, which they probably were, and Luke moves things around for theological reasons. Um, but in the, in the context there, it's you guys are so messed up and you're so against the things of God that you watch God working and you say, that's the work of Satan. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So again, I think the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a one time I messed up and now I can never go to heaven sort of a thing. Boy, these trucks are really loud in the podcast, too, by the way. I was, like, editing the podcast last week, and somebody honked. Or, Ooh, boy. Um, anyway, it's not, a whole, it's not a one-time you messed up thing. It's a whole life of acceptance or rejection. All right. And so Jesus calls his people to live that whole life of acceptance, no matter how hard Babylon presses against you. And then the end of the passage. And this is sort of the pinnacle of the passage. Verse 11, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about, what you, about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that day, I'm sorry, in that very hour what you ought to say. Okay, look at this real quick. He's talking to his 12 disciples while everybody's listening. The very beginning of this, and when they bring you. 
That's terrifying. It's not if, when they bring you. In the Greek, it's very emphatic. Babylon, again, like Timothy says, like Paul says to Timothy, Babylon is coming for you. It's coming after the kingdom of God. And I think that a lot of us need to stop and ask, if our lives are so comfortable, right? If your life is so comfortable, maybe you should start thinking about, where has Babylon pressed up against me? And if it hasn't happened, that's a good question to ask why. We shouldn't be looking for persecution, right? Like there was one of the church fathers, I forget, who was like, he like tried to move to a town where everybody was getting persecuted because he thought that would be, he would get more rewards in heaven. That's kind of idiotic, right? That's not how we're doing. But if we've lived lives completely where the world doesn't care at all about the way we're living, the question is, are we really living into the kingdom of God? Because the Bible is very consistent that Babylon in some way will always press against the kingdom of God. And when it happens, Jesus makes this promise. The Holy Spirit will work through you. Um, I got in a huge fight with a professor about this verse in seminary, uh, college, not seminary. And um, it was in a class about teaching uh, youth group stuff, like preaching in youth group kind of. And the pastor was a, pen, uh, the teacher professor was a Pentecostal pastor. And he said, this verse is why you should never prepare for sermons. And I was like, okay, first off, Dingleberry, I think I called him that in front of the whole class, right? I was a very disrespectful kid. I was like, look, Turkey, there's context here. <laughs> this is not about preaching, this verse, right? Um, there's a... Um, there's a pastor in Santa Barbara, uh, David Guzik. He says, this is not a justification in poor preparation in teaching and preaching God's word, but it's a, this is the important part. It's a promise of strength and guidance for the persecuted that have an opportunity to testify about Jesus. So let me tell you what this is not saying, this verse. That when Babylon comes, you're always going to say the perfect thing because the Holy Spirit. That's not true. Or when Babylon comes, you're going to have huge evangelistic success because the Spirit will be speaking through you. Or when Babylon comes, you will always be successful. That's not what it's saying. What it is saying is that when Babylon comes, you won't be alone. That's the important part. When Babylon comes, the Spirit is going to work through you. Right? The Spirit will give you that sense of eternity, the perspective that will help you endure Babylon. And by enduring and staying faithful to Jesus, that's how we win. That's how we defeat Babylon. It's not by actually winning, but by enduring as Babylon persecutes us. So that's the passage. Let me tell you this. As we put this into the perspective of the gospel, think about it like this. Jesus faced persecution. You're not greater than your master. That's what he says. He said, they're going to persecute me. He faced death for a greater purpose, right? For our redemption. And, but from the cross, what did Jesus cry out from Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, he cries out about being alone. Because on the cross for the very first time since eternity passed, right, the Trinity was broken up and Jesus was alone. No Father, no Holy Spirit, only the wrath of hell. The wrath of God poured out on him and he faced it completely alone, completely and utterly alone as he bled to death on the cross. But because he did it alone, when we're in situations where Babylon is pressing in on us, we don't have to be alone. Right? He was alone so that we don't have to be. His death has brought us back to God. His death has allowed us to be filled with God's Holy Spirit. His death allows our church to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we stand in this long line of kingdom people and kingdom churches 
who have lived out this principle that we're not alone because Jesus was. And we, ha- we, we get in these situations and we have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit because Jesus faced it completely and utterly alone. And I have a bunch of examples that I don't have time to get through. I want you to go read some of these later, but I'll just tell you a few of them. Um, in the beginning of Acts, the apostles are arrested by the Sanhedrin, the same people that had just killed Jesus a few months before. And they stand up and they give this beautiful defense of the faith. And at the end of it, the Sanhedrin guys go, aren't these a bunch of redneck fishermen? Where did they get all this learning? It's the first prime example of what Jesus is talking about here. In these situations, the spirit is going to speak through you. The same thing happens a little while later with a guy named Stephen. And Stephen then is killed. And because of his death, the church scatters. And as they scatter, persecute, um, uh, the gospel spreads. Right? It's like this sort of like he dies to start this movement. Um, there's a story of Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. You know the story? Philip's walking along the road. He sees this guy reading a scroll out loud because apparently very few people read to themselves back in the day. That was not really a thing yet. So he's sitting there. He's reading this Isaiah scroll. He's confused about it. And Philip feels the Holy Spirit tell him, hey, go talk to that guy. So he goes, he talks to him, which was a scary thing to approach an important uh, political figure. The guy gets saved and uh, becomes a believer. Paul in Athens is another one. You guys know the story of Paul in Athens, Acts 17? He's standing before the greatest philosophical minds in the world, and he gives this beautiful defense of the Christian faith, and he uses some of their stuff, their philosophy, to sort of show them. It's a famous passage. Um, again, the same thing happens with Paul at the temple when he's arrested in Jerusalem. First, he preaches to the people at the temple. Then he preaches to the Sanhedrin. Then later on, he gets to go before um, the, the governor, who, a guy named Festus at the time. And then Herod, who was like the king of that area, you know, and um, his wife Bernice were there. Um, and Paul gets to stand up in front of these guys and give this defense of the faith. He does the same thing in Rome. Um, I do want to read to you one verse here. Let me see. I have it somewhere. Let me flip through. This is the letter. Do you guys remember the seven letters to the churches? This is the letter to the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then he, the whole, he who has an ear, let him hear, that whole thing, right? This is the important part. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. That's what we're called to do as, as God's people. And we're part of this long line of people who have done this, right? Polycarp, who was killed in the, the arena in front of a ton of people. And that guy, we don't know how much of the story is true, um, but if even some of it is true, that guy is like the most baller dude in the history of Christianity. They tied him to a stake, and they were about to burn him. And they were like, he was like a bishop, an old man too. He was like in his 80s. The guy's like, deny Christ or we'll burn you. And he goes, uh, I served this dude for 86 years. You want me to deny him? No way, man. And by the way, you think these flames are hot. Just wait what's coming for you. Right? Like, that's a gutsy move. So then they tried to burn him, and he didn't die. The flames... Uh, like didn't burn him. So then they stabbed him with the spear and apparently what happened was the blood gushed out and put out the fire. 
And then a whole bunch of people became believers because of the way he was like so bold. Or there was a guy, um, Hugh Latimer, who was killed um, in the, the Reformation times. Um, he was persecuted. And um, him and two guy, another guy, uh, something Ridley, I forget the guy's name, Ridley, something Ridley, were tied to the same stake. And as they started lighting the flames, this is what Hugh Latimer said, play the man, Master Ridley, which means like man up, right? Because the other guy was really freaking out. Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that it shall never be put out, right? This is the kind of like faithful witness that these people have done over, over the course of Christian history. And so here's the problem, though, with this text as we read this. How do we apply this? Nobody's lopping off our fingers with bolt cutters. This is happening in the world. This is happening in China. This is happening in India. There are parts of Muslim Africa where this is happening, especially parts of the Middle East, where Christians are facing intense persecution. Afghanistan, when we left Afghanistan, I read some really gut-wrenching stuff, letters that were sent out by some pastors in Afghanistan. But we're not there, right? We're in North Beach. How does this apply to us? Well, let me just do this real quick in less than two minutes. You are probably really excited about the PAB of Pabst. I'm going to pray for people. I'm going to listen to their stories, and I'm going to bless them. I'm going to buy them lunch. I'm going to help pay bills. I'm going to do this stuff, and it's going to look really good. And you're probably terrified about the last two. I, can't, I don't know how to share my faith, and I don't know how to talk about the gospel. Right? Is that pretty much how it goes? Right? It's not just me. I'm guessing that's most people, right? Is we're a lot more comfortable with the beginning of the past pathway than the end. Um, you're afraid that when you share about the kingdom of God in your life with Babylon, there'll be pushback. Maybe friends will distance themselves. It might halt the climb at work, right, up the ladder. Um, you're afraid that, uh, you know, maybe you'll be some sort of a social outcast or you'll be that weirdo Christian. I mean, these are all real things that could happen. I just want to, like, take this passage and, and use it to encourage you with the words of Jesus. That's what this passage, that's how we can apply this passage. When you are in those conversations and you get to a point where you have, there's a fork in the road. I can either talk about things of faith or I cannot. I can move the conversation this way. You get to that place in the fork in the road. Um, are you going to bring up the gospel or not? Your palms start sweating <laughs> and you start to get worried about what it is that you're going to say. Remember this, that Jesus promises you that in that moment, you're not by yourself. Right? In those moments where the world is telling you, don't talk about faith, don't talk about Jesus. Right? We live in Babylon. This is the kind of stuff we talk about. Jesus says, in those moments, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit is right there with you, encouraging you, strengthening you, speaking to people, even through your jumbled up, ineloquent words. Right? You don't have to be perfect. Because Jesus faced the cross alone. We never have to be alone again. Even when we're in those one-on-one -on -one conversation moments where we feel completely by ourselves, Jesus says, guys, you're not. And I'll be there and I'll be working with you. And I'll be speaking to your friends and neighbors as you try to. Amen? All right, let's pray.